Amen. Good morning, church. Kids are uh, dismissed to your classrooms. If you're up through fifth grade, if you're in sixth grade, you're stuck with us, so get used to it. Um, If you're still in here, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. We're continuing our study of some of the parables of Jesus by looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is a fascinating parable, a lot to talk about this morning, so please be turning there with me. I also just wanted to give a little update on uh, Pastor Jerry. He texted me uh, just a little bit ago and said, so he had like a heart, like a I don't know, the top wasn't beating at the same time as the bottom, which is not good. And uh, so they tell me, I know nothing about medicine at all. Um, But uh, they got it fixed, and so that's great. Um, uh, But unfortunately, they won't let him go home from the hospital until he sees a cardiologist, and that isn't until uh, Monday at the earliest. So poor guy, he's feeling 100% fine, and he's stuck in the hospital on on Father's Day. So a little discouraging. So that maybe uh, if uh, it might encourage him, if you ha- if you have your phone with you and if you have his uh, phone number in your phone, just send him a text right now. We'll just send him a bunch of texts all at the same time and just say we miss you and hope you're feeling better and happy Father's Day. They sent him home. Praise the Lord. They sent him home. That's great. Uh, you can still text him. I still think, still think that would be encouraging, but that is awesome news. Thank you for the update. Uh, so they sent him home and he's doing uh, doing a lot better. So Praise the Lord for that. Um, yeah, God is good. All right, well, we are in, uh, like I said, the study of the rich man and Lazarus this morning, this parable. Uh, I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then I will pray. It says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, um, you have given us your word to know you, to know Jesus. And if we're not convinced by that, we wouldn't be convinced by somebody um, rising from the dead and standing before us right now, God. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you have for us this morning. And Lord, like, uh, like the rich man, um, may we not wait until it's too late to know what is true about you. So help us hear these somber warnings in this passage this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, well, it will be no surprise to you. I can't remember if I have told you guys this or not, but starting in August, after we finish this series on uh, Jesus in the Gospels, we are going to be starting a little kind of mini-series. I say that, and you know me, it will stretch into a mega-series, but at the time being, it's going to start as a mini-series uh, called Heaven, Hell, and Life After Life After Death. I'm going to say that again, heaven, hell, and life after, life after death. I still stole that phrase, life after, life after death, from a, a guy named N.T. Wright, and I really like that because um, the point being, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about what happens in life after death, uh, but it really is interested in telling us what happens in life after, life after death. And so we are going to study all that the Bible has to say about what happens uh, right after death, and then what happens after, after death, when Jesus comes and make all things, makes all things new and all things right. Uh, but one of the things that we're going to talk about in this series is uh, the idea of the concept of heaven and hell. And what does the Bible say happens to those uh, who follow Jesus right after they die? And what does the Bible say happens to those who don't follow Jesus right after they die? And um, we all have lots of questions about these things. And uh, the more you, like I said, the more you kind of look into Scripture for your answers, you realize there's not a whole lot to be said about what happens right after you die. And uh, so we're going to talk about those things. We're going to talk about what is heaven like? Uh, what's the new creation going to be like? What are we going to be doing for eternity anyway? Eternity, I don't know if you guys know this, is a really long time. It, uh, it actually never ends. And uh, what are we going to do for all that time? I mean, honestly, um, uh, go, to, go to the beach for like two weeks, and by the end, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm ready to come home. So like eternity is a really long time. And uh, so we're going to talk about what is life going to be like? What does the Bible at least tell us that life is going to be like? And I'm super excited for that series uh, starting in August, but in this morning, we have a kind of difficult passage to deal with uh, because we have a parable that seems on its face to be telling a story about what happens right after you die, right? We have a rich guy and a poor guy. Uh, the rich guy uh, seems, uh, they both die. Seems like the rich guy goes to hell and the poor guy goes to heaven. But then what happens next should raise all sorts of questions for us, right? Maybe, how many of you have studied this passage before and been a little bit troubled by it? You can raise your hand. Not very many. Okay, this is, this is not a very familiar uh, story then to us. Um, it's, uh, maybe you're having some questions right now as I just read it then, like uh, questions like, are people in heaven going to be able to see people in hell suffering, right? And vice versa, are people in hell going to be able to see people in heaven? 
if I am in heaven, which I hope I am, am I going to, as part of being in heaven, meaning I'm watching my loved ones who died and didn't know Jesus suffer for eternity and like they're going to be begging me to come and like give them comfort and like I'm not going to be allowed to go and, and comfort them. Uh, that doesn't sound like heaven to me, right? Let's, let's be honest. That doesn't sound uh, like something that w- we want to experience. Anyone else a little bit bothered by that? A little bit. Like, okay, what's, what's going on here? Uh, also gives questions like, are people in hell going to be able to speak to people in heaven? Are people in hell aware of what's going on on earth with their families? Like, are they going to suffer terribly forever and not find any relief and not even a drop of water? And they'll just, like, be in this, like, state of, like, agony and burning forever and ever? And if so, why <laughs> is that the case? And, um, the, again, I think if you're a Christian, you've probably thought about these things. And it's probably at least brought some turmoil in your heart. Like, What's, what's going on uh, here? And like I said, we're going we're gonna to talk more about those things uh, starting in August. But uh, if this is a parable about what happens in heaven and hell, then it's just terrifying for everyone, right? It's terrifying for the people in hell, but it's terrifying for the people in heaven because they're going to maybe communicate with the people in hell and not be able to help them, and that sounds like a horrible way to spend eternity. You with me on some of these questions a little bit of like what we should be bringing to this passage. Okay, so this morning, I'm going to argue that this actually isn't a parable about what happens in heaven and hell. In fact, I'll go one step further. This might sound crazy. I, don't, I think the assumption that one person is in heaven and one person is in hell is actually a wrong assumption. Okay? Uh, what I think Jesus is speaking to is kind of the ancient Jewish understanding of what happens right after you die, which is different than the understanding that we have once we consider the entire council of Scripture. And uh, if you want, I don't have time to go into all of this, but if you want, I read an article that was really helpful to me. It's by a guy named, a scholar named Richard Bauckham for the Evangelical Theological Society, their journal. And he wrote it in 1991. And uh, I see all all of you furiously writing that down because you can't wait to get to that article. Just kidding. I don't see anyone doing that. But you should, okay? You should write that down. Richard Bauckham, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M or something. And uh, Google Richard Bauckham, Rich Man and Lazarus, and you'll find the article But basically, the point that he argues, which I found convincing, is that um, he is Jesus is placing this parable in the place that Jewish people at the time thought that everyone goes when they die, which is the grave. Or in other words, you might have read in your Old Testament the word Sheol, right? Or if you want to sound cool to Bible nerds, which why wouldn't you? I mean, come on, Sheol, right? The grave. And uh, there was an understanding back then that everyone, when you die, goes to the grave. And this will maybe make sense of some Psalms that you've read that you kind of maybe were a little bit curious about why does it say that I'm going to go to the grave. 
when I die. And there was kind of uh, an understanding that if you were a part of God's people, you would be gathered to God's people. And you see this actually in the genealogy in Genesis. I'm way off my notes, by the way. I, I cut all this out, and now I'm adding it on the fly. So I don't know exactly where in Genesis it says, but in genealogies in Genesis, it'll say uh, this person died and was gathered to his people. He died and was gathered to his people. So what we have is somebody who dies and is gathered to Abraham, somebody else who thinks he's a part of the family. He even calls Abraham Father Abraham in this parable, but he's cut off, he's removed, and what is between them is a chasm. So when it says he looked up and saw Abraham and Lazarus, it doesn't mean looked up into heaven and saw them, it's kind of just like he just looked up and saw. Like if I said I was walking on the road and I looked up and I saw a car, car coming towards me, it's not like there's a car coming towards me from the sky, right? He just saw a car coming. It's just, so it's the same way. He's, they're in the grave. And uh, so this is not what happens when you die, okay, in, in the way that we fully understand it. And this is where we're going to have to take some time later on to talk about this. But uh, so then why would Jesus tell this story about what happens when you die when it's not actually what happens when you die? Well, there's, here's the reason, because it, that's what a parable is. <laughs> Parables aren't always, they're not telling you exactly what happened, right? Uh, we don't believe that Jesus is literally going to hire us to work in a vineyard before we go uh, to, to heaven, right? Like we, this, these are word pictures to help us understand the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And so that is what Jesus is giving here. It's, it's a story to help us understand the nature of the kingdom of heaven. So long introduction. All that to say, uh, it's not telling us uh, that we're going to spend eternity like snuggling with Abraham and watching like our friends and family suffer in hell. That's not what uh, we should get from this passage. But it, this passage is teaching us something very profound about money and helping the poor and, and most importantly, about the danger of waiting too late to respond to the good news of the kingdom. And so that's what we need to hear this morning. Uh, and so let's look at it now and let's see what uh, Jesus has to say to us through this parable. So look again at verse 9. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's a fun word to say, sumptuously. I don't use that word very often in my daily life. Never uh, has so much been said about a person and the, his character and the way he lived in so few words. This is a man who wears purple clothes every day. Now back then, clothes were expensive. They didn't have old navy outlet or whatever, like you just go and just get a bunch of clothes for jail. Clothes were very expensive, and it was a source of stress uh, for people of how am I going to be able to afford clothing. And so that's why Jesus says, don't worry about what you wear. We read, don't worry about what you wear. And it's like, I'm not really worried that I'm literally not going to be able to find clothes. So for us, we hear it's more like, don't worry about like paying for health care or like affording like to live somewhere. Like those are the economic insecurities that many of us have. Back then, it was, clothing was super expensive. And uh, this guy wore purple clothes every day. Purple clothes were, it was like a ridiculous, 
ridiculous expense, dyeing clothes purple. In fact, the only people, you guys probably know this, the only people who wore purple were who? Royalty, right, you guys, you guys are with me, royalty. And so this would be like a guy driving around like a gold-plated Lamborghini nowadays, right? Like, not only am I rich, not only can I drive a Lambo, I'm so ridiculously rich that I'm just like covered it in gold, like just because I can. That's what this guy, and then he says he's wearing fine linens. And one commentary I read, I don't know if I buy it or not, but one commentary I read said this would actually, was referring to his underwear. So like this guy wasn't wearing like uh, Sam's Club tidy whities He was like his, his outer clothes were ridiculously expensive and his inner clothes were ridiculously expensive. It was just like luxury, right, all over. And then it says he feasted sumptuously every day, just extravagant feasts. Every day. <laughs> How often is, does every day happen? Good job. Somebody's with me. Every day. That's right. And so put yourself again in this time period. Uh, every day, when something happened every day, um, that was a big deal because um, there was one day every week where things like this weren't supposed to happen. And so uh, we don't hear that because we don't think that way about the Sabbath all the time. But uh, the people who heard this first would have immediately thought, oh, wow, this guy is forcing all of his servants to cook him meals even on the Sabbath. He just has no regard for, uh, for anyone other than himself, and he has no regard for God's law, and he's just, he's just living in absolute the most extreme luxury possible. And uh, once again, we need to remember who Jesus' audience was for this parable. Look, at verse, look back at verse 14 with me of Luke chapter 16. The people who would have been hearing this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. All right, so we have Pharisees who are lovers of money and who are ridiculing, scoffing at Jesus. Jesus, who is what? The fulfillment of the law. So now Jesus tells a story about a guy who's super rich and who scoffs, who ridicules God's law. He says, I'm above it. I can do whatever I want. And um, so this is the picture of extreme wealth, of extreme narcissism, and just uh, seeing every single person as beneath you. And now verse 20, we have just the polar opposite of that. At his gate was laid a poor man. Notice what the passive voice there. He, he didn't lay there. He was brought there and laid there. A poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. First of all, this is the only time in all of the parables when Jesus gives anyone a name. Other than that, it's always been a certain man this, a certain person that. Uh, and, uh, and this is the first time that uh, someone is given a name. Why? Was Jesus just feeling extra creative that day? And so he thought, I'll just give this little, little detail flair. No, uh, there's a reason for it. The word Lazarus means God helps, and so if you're named Lazarus, you would, be, you would be known as the one God helps, okay? So we have a nameless rich man, and then we have somebody named Lazarus who doesn't seem like God is really helping him. 
does it. He's, he's so uh, weak and poor and sick that he just is laid at this rich man's gate and because, they, because his friends, I'm sure, think, well, this is just the best. This guy's having feasts every day. The best chance for our friend to get fed is if we just put him here. He says he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Now, that, should, that phrase should remind you of one chapter earlier, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, he desired to be fed with what fell from the, the pig's table, right? And, uh, and now we have... Uh, one chapter later, this man, Lazarus, and all he wants is to be fed with uh, what fell from the rich man's table, but he didn't give him anything, is the insinuation. And it says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, let's talk about the dogs for a minute. We have, I think I've shared with you before, we have a, a ridiculous fluff ball of a dog named Freddy, who uh, actually he's not a fluff ball right now because we neglected to brush him as much as we should have, and so he had to get shaved the last time to our uh, shame as dog owners. And so we actually have a rat named Freddy right now. Um, but you know, it's just this ridiculous thing. And uh, and uh, back then, uh, there weren't any uh, fluff ball dogs. Dogs were not uh, pets in any way, shape, or form. It's more like ki- kind of like coyotes, probably, of how we think about them now. Uh, they were wild, and if they were like captured, uh, it would have been like to be chained up to be guard dogs um, back then. But um, what this is telling us is that uh, those dogs were taking better care of him by licking his sores than the rich man was. So it's, it's like really giving this, again, it's, it's condemning the rich man for how little he was doing to care for Lazarus, the one who God helps. So that's our, we have just a, could not be more of a dichotomy here. And then uh, what happens? Both of them die. And this is strange because also, there's another first in a parable. Never have we been transported beyond the earthly realm in a parable. So you'd expect it to say, like, you know, the rich man died and then they threw him a funeral and talk about what would happen to his estate and everything after. But no, we're actually just like all of a sudden like, zoom, we're like transported in, down into uh, Hades, which, mean, which literally just means the grave or Sheol. We're, we're, we're shown what is happening in the world beyond this world. And uh, so this is what happens. Verse 22, the, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Okay. The tables have turned, haven't they? The one who God helps is now being helped, not in this world, but in the life to come. And the rich man is being tormented And so he looks up and he can see Abraham and Lazarus far away. And I want you to pay, here we go. All right, we're getting into it now. I want you to pay really close attention to what happens next. And I I have a question for you. I want you to think about this. Do we see evidence that the rich man's heart has changed at all? Okay, so we're going to look at what he says. He looks up. he He recognizes Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And we ask the question, has the rich man had a change of heart? Look at verse 24. He called out, Father Abraham, again, trying to, 
to kind of pull on, like, you're my, I thought you were my father, Abraham. Why aren't I with you? <laughs> father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Um, what's he asking Abraham to do? To send Lazarus to be his personal servant. The audacity. <laughs> this should make your skin crawl. That's what Jesus is wanting you to feel. This should make your skin crawl. The audacity for this man who, who was living in such, such luxury, he was dying his clothes purple, and he couldn't even give the, Lazarus scraps from his feasts that he had every day that the dogs were coming to eat. He's now demanding that Lazarus be his servant and tend to his needs. And this is incredibly offensive. Has he changed his heart? No, he has not. He should be humbled, but he still sees himself. I mean, think about, think about the position that he's in and the exalted position that Lazarus is in, and yet the rich man still sees himself as superior to Lazarus. So Abraham responds, verse 25, child, recognizing you are in my family, child, remember that in your lifetime, you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, and now he is comforted here and you are in anguish, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There is a great irony, if we can see it. What was the chasm between Lazarus and the rich man on earth? The gate, right? All Lazarus could do was get up to the gate hoping that some scraps might fall off the table and he might be temporarily satisfied. Now the tables have turned. Do you see this? Now there's a chasm, and the rich man is hoping that maybe just a scrap from Lazarus can fall onto his lap, and he can be temporarily satisfied. But it's too late. So the rich man responds. He said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Has he had a change of heart now? No. First he thinks that Lazarus should be his servant. If he can't be his servant, he can be his errand boy. Okay, send, okay. You, uh, yeah, yeah, you got Lazarus right there. Uh, I'm sure he's good for something. Send him to go tell my, my, uh, my brothers uh, and tell them so that they don't end up here. Ah, how do you not get it? <laughs> Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know all that. I know about Moses and the prophets, but I know my brothers. They're not going to a church service. They're not going to listen to all of that. That's just boring whatever stuff. But if someone would show up from the dead... Then they'll believe. I mean, how could they not believe? And so uh, what's he doing? 
come on, Abraham, give my brother special treatment. Don't you know how important I am? Send someone to go tell them. This is a man who is used to ordering people around and getting his way. And he, even as the tables have been completely turned, is so blind to it that he doesn't realize he can't order people around and get his way anymore. And Abraham reminds him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And uh, that's where our parable ends. And this morning, really, it's, it's a pretty sombering parable. As I sit, stand here and think about it right now, maybe on Father's Day we should have done the prodigal son parable. That would have been a more feel-good one than today. I don't know why I can't think of these things in time to do that. But here we, anyway, here we are now. We're in, we're in too deep anyway. And we have four warnings from this parable uh, that we need to hear this morning. You need to hear these things from God's word. Uh, and uh, four warnings as we close. Here's the first one. First warning is just simply don't love money. <laughs> don't love money. Oh, man, Jesus could not be more clear about this over and over and over. We've already seen in the Gospels, um, Jesus doesn't want us to love money. The Pharisees were lovers of money, and they scoffed at Jesus. Right? You know the story of the rich young ruler who felt like he was so close to following Jesus, and then Jesus just exposed what was in his heart. He said, sell everything you have and follow me, and he couldn't do it. It was a bridge too far because he loved money. Remember the rich fool in the parable from last week was so in love with his belongings, with what he had received on earth, that he made zero plans for what was going to happen in eternity. And um, this is a sober warning for us. The Bible doesn't condemn the rich just for being rich. Um, I mean, Abraham was super wealthy, and you see where he is, right? It's not just about being wealthy or not being wealthy. The Bible doesn't condemn the rich just for being rich, but the Bible does warn the rich over and over and over, and I think it's because Jesus knows how stinking tempting it is to trust in our possessions rather than his provision, to trust in our sufficiency rather than his sovereignty to seek after money rather than his majesty. This is a way our hearts are bent in this earth. And Jesus just says, don't love money. The kingdom of heaven, church, is so backwards from the way that we think. When things are tight for me financially, either personally or at the church, I pray a lot. And when things are great financially, I don't pray as much. And Jesus almost seems to be saying the opposite, right? Who is the one whom God helps in this story? The poor man. If you have a lot of money, we better be praying because <laughs> you're in a dangerous spot. 
And uh, if you don't have very many earthly possessions, praise the Lord. Thank God for that blessing because you're <laughs> the one who God helps is the insinuation of this passage. And in a country with something called the American dream, which is going from having nothing to having everything, Jesus says the kingdom dream is going from everything to realizing you have nothing on earth because in me I want to give you everything. You see that? And it's so much better. Boy, the American dream, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Not that I personally know that, but uh, oh man, how much greater is the kingdom than money? And so very simply, um, guard your heart. You know where your thoughts have been. You know where your mind has been turning. You know where you've been going in your mind saying, if I can just get to here, man, that's where my happiness is going to come. And Jesus is just saying, be careful. Be careful. Lazarus is the one who God helps. And uh, would you rather, who would you rather be in the story? I mean, come on. In, in the first part of the story, yeah, I'd rather be the rich man. But when you look at the whole story, who would you rather be? Lazarus. And it's not even close, is it? <laughs> Man, we need to hear this. I need to hear this. It's the first warning. Don't love money. Here's the second one. It goes right along with it. Don't neglect a life of justice and mercy. Don't neglect to live a life of justice and mercy. The phrase uh, social justice it's kind of gotten a bad reputation in some Christian circles uh, right now. And I think th there's reason for that. There's, there are some people who have elevated this idea of bringing justice as the means to your salvation. Right? That's, that, uh, some people teach that salvation comes through the liberation of the poor and the oppressed. Uh, whether that's oppressed racial groups or sexual orientation groups or nations or whatever that is. And we would definitely reject that for sure. Um, salvation does not come through that. But at the very same time, I fear that we're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater on this one. Um, as Christians, we absolutely must be for social justice in the way that it is demanded by Jesus for his followers. Again, the man's folly in this parable wasn't just being rich. It was that his riches blinded him to the needs of other people around him. You see that? It wasn't the problem wasn't his riches. The problem was what his riches did to callous his heart to the needs of people around him. And I'm, I'm just real convicted right now, church, and I think we all probably should be a little bit. Are the, is my own self-sufficiency forming a callous on my heart so that I don't feel compassion to the needs of people around me? If so, then I'm right where that rich man was. And maybe I'm not wearing purple clothes and driving around in a gold-plated Lamborghini, but that's not the point. The point isn't to say, oh, I don't have as much stuff as a rich man, so I can't be like him. <laughs> the point is, am I allowing the same thing to happen in my heart that happened to him? And um, I can't let that happen, church. And uh, man, if there's one thing that I've really had my eyes open to as we've taken a deep dive into the Gospels together is how important uh, it is uh, for us to be caring for the needs of those around us. In Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus tells us who the goats are. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And this is a somber warning. Um, we know from Scripture, we're not saved on account of how much we help the poor and needy. Uh, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But just because salvation isn't on the basis of how we help those in need, the fruit of our salvation will always be seeing and helping those in need around us. Does that make sense? If we're saved, if we're really following Jesus, if God has raised our hearts from death to life, then we will be aware of needs around us and we will uh, we will do what we can to help those who are in need. And so this parable is a strong warning uh, to all of us in one of the richest countries in the world uh, to not neglect a life of justice and mercy. Third, third warning, don't reject God's word. Don't reject God's word. Listen again to the last verse of this parable. It's so interesting. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you buy that? Do you know anyone in your life who doesn't believe what Scripture says? What if your great-grandpa could appear to them and tell them, hey, all this stuff about Jesus is true? Do you think that would convince them? Jesus says no. Why not? And aren't we tempted to think that way when we pray for people that we love who don't know Jesus? Like, God, just show them such a huge miracle that they cannot deny who you are. That's like, we're, I'm tempted to pray that. And what Jesus says is, if they didn't listen to my word, my words, they're not going to even believe if someone rises from the dead. So how can he say that? Well, um, let's start in this story. Is there anyone in this story who saw somebody's life after death and yet remained unchanged? The rich man, right? That's exactly what happens in this story. He, even though he saw what happened, he wouldn't believe what was actually happening to him as it was happening, Well, but let's just take Jesus' words at face value. Like, what if there was a man who could rise from the actual dead and appear to people? Wouldn't everyone believe? And if Jesus did that, like, wouldn't everyone start following him? I'm trying to think. There was a story in the, in the Gospels where Jesus did raise someone from the dead. What was that guy's name? Lazarus. That's right. What a coincidence, right? No, I don't think that's a coincidence. Jesus did do that. And did everyone just fall on their face and start worshiping him? And the Pharisees said, you're wrong, we're right. Or you're, you're I said that backwards. <laughs> they did say, you're wrong, we're right. They didn't say, you're right, we're wrong. 
I'm sorry we ever doubted you, Jesus. No, it drove them further into wanting to kill him. See, the problem isn't our, our minds so much as it's our hearts. And if you have a hard heart, your mind is going to, even in the face of the most overwhelming, convincing evidence, uh, your, your mind is just going to convince you that you're in the right, um, no matter what. And this should be really a warning for us on like the extent of which apologetics can be helpful, right? You know, this apologetics meaning like the study of how do we defend our faith? How do we make arguments for why Christianity is true? And there's a, there's a benefit to that for sure. But if you are the kind of person who thinks, I need to study everything I can and every argument that I can make because I'm just going to boom, drop this in an atheist's face and whammo, he's going to have to believe uh, no, because Jesus could send someone from the dead, and uh, if they have a hard heart, they still won't believe. And, uh, and uh, how do we come to know what is true about God? It's in his word, and it's in Moses and the prophets. And who is the embodiment of Moses and the prophets? It's Jesus. And who are the Moses and the prophets all about? It's Jesus. So if you don't believe what Jesus says, if you don't believe who he was, no amount of evidence is going to convince you. And so if you are here this morning and you're looking for more evidence than that, I can't give it to you other than I can just beg you, listen to what Jesus says. Which brings us right to our fourth warning, uh, which is very simply, don't wait until it's too late. <laughs> don't miss your chance. Ultimately, this story is a tragedy. So even though it's not describing like a real picture of what heaven and hell look like, it is describing something that can be all too real, which is finding out too late that Jesus is the king of the universe. Because everyone's going to know someday. And so as we close, I just want to tell you very plainly and very simply that uh, one day you are going to die. And that's going to happen. And it's happened to everyone who has ever lived. And uh, you're gonna, it's going to happen to you too. You're going to die. And what the Bible says is that you're going to have to give account for everything you ever said, did, or thought. And those things better be perfect. And, um, and, uh, and if it's perfect, great. You're in. You're good. And you don't have anything to worry about. But if in anything you ever said, did, or thought was actually an affront and a sin against a perfect and holy and powerful God, then, um, then you will spend eternity separated from him because that's how God's holiness works. And, um, and so if you are right now hoping that you're going to be in a good spot, I just got to tell you, you're, you're not. Because your only hope is that when you do die and you do have to give an account for everything that you said, did, or thought, that somebody else's life and what they said, did, or thought could actually be credited to you and that when God looks at you, he sees a perfect life and not your life that is full of sin and shame and ways that you messed up and ways that I messed up. And of course, the good news is that that's Jesus. And God wants that for you. 
oh man, God did not send his son begrudgingly upset that he would have to save someone like you. He sent his son because he saw you dead in sin and he wanted to make you alive together with Christ and to know that by grace you have been saved. And so I just gotta say this morning, uh, if you're hearing this and you are hoping you're gonna be okay uh, in the most loving way possible, I just gotta tell you you're, you're not if you're apart from Christ. Uh, but if you're in Christ... Uh, you have nothing to fear because his righteousness is applied to you and you will spend eternity with, uh, with God himself. And there is no better place to be. And so if you have not given your life to the Lord, I want to encourage you this morning on this Father's Day to do that, to repent of your sin, to admit to God. Repent is just a big Bible word. That means I admit that all my stuff is not good enough and I can't wear these nasty, dirty clothes of my righteousness into your presence. I need Jesus to clothe me with his righteousness so that I can be worthy to live with you forever worthiness not on our own but in christ and so if, i just want to encourage you to, to just tell god i messed up but i believe that jesus is the one who can save me and if you don't know how to do that if you don't know how to pray that after the service i would love to pray with you even if you were going to have a song right now and if you wanted to come and pray with me right here in the front row i'd love to do that if you want to wait until after the service you can do that but i just don't want you to wait the whole point of this parable is don't miss your chance because one day that day is going to come and I want you to think back on this sermon with joy, <laughs> this time in God's word with delight saying, thank you God for telling me then so I didn't have to wait to hear it now for the first time, but you told me and I believed because I believe your word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, if, if there's anyone in here or even listening on the live stream um, that uh, doesn't know you, that has not been saved, God, I just ask that they wouldn't wait until it's too late, but they would know the incredible love that you have for them, Father, that you sent your son to live that perfect life and then to die the death that we deserved so that we can look forward to the day when everything is made new and right and we don't have to worry about living lives of justice and mercy because you will make everything just and you will be the merciful one. And so if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, God. And uh, for those of us who do know you, I pray that we would hear these warnings about just our, our, uh, our propensity to love money, to trust in the things that we have rather than you, to neglect the needs of those around us, and to want uh, some special miracle rather than your word, which is right in front of us, God. Help us to that end, we pray. We thank you, God, that you are our perfect heavenly Father. God, no matter, the, no matter what kind of dads anyone has in here, uh, God, we know that you are our perfect heavenly Father. And you created us with that longing in a heart to be in relationship with you. We love you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.